As we're joined by Steve Ashburner to go around the world of the NBA, Steve coming to us from NBA.com. Steve, it's Bob and Kayla. How are you on this Friday? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Always enjoy speaking with you. And, well, we have to start here. Kevin Durant and the Phoenix Suns. Uh, Much to do about when Kevin Durant is going to be making his debut with the Suns. But when it comes down to it, there's only 20 or so games left in the regular season before the playoffs get started. So is there enough time for KD to work his way into how the Suns want to play, figure out what works best before the games become win or go home? And also, does KD's time on U.S. teams with Chris Paul and Devin Booker help or hurt in this situation? Oh, you know, I don't know how much that helps. I mean, you're talking a couple of players. I get it. Um, But, um, you know, it's going to take the overall group. I mean, I suppose the the familiarity on the floor is better than not having it. I think there's enough time. I mean, you know, to me, the, the challenge is for everyone else to sort of fit around Kevin Durant. Um, you know, a lot of times when a player joins a new team, it's it's on him, the burden to uh, make sure that he can fit in without rocking the boat. But um, Durant is so, um, well, it's two things. I mean, he's so essential to what, you know, what's going to come out of this. And um, he's sort of a plug-and-play kind of a guy. I don't, I don't think that uh, his style of play um, would disrupt much. I mean, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, touches that, that somebody else might be used to, might be going to him now. But um, I, I think it's a fairly easy um, uh, process for these guys to be able to handle it on the floor. You've got, you know, veterans by and large, and um, shouldn't be that big a deal. I mean, the, to me, the bigger question is, you know, they're about, what, 10 games behind the Nuggets in the, uh, in the West? And is there enough time for them to uh, climb all the way up to the one seed? I don't think so. The math is really hard for that to happen. Um, and, and, and then what does that portend for the playoffs? Well, what it would portend is that when they met, um, Denver would, would have that home game, that game seven in its back pocket, which, which could matter but might not. Um, you know, I think that the Suns can use you know, the remaining regular season to ramp up, but they can, they can still be finding their way and, and making this work you know, in the first round, when you're playing lower seeds, um, particularly, you know, if, if they can get to a position where somebody is uh, uh, scrambling, you know, up, up the playing ladder, you know, then, then you know, we'll see. I mean, maybe they don't get that high, but they're, they're still, you know, they're going to have, I think, a lot of advantages. I, I think they're going to be the second best team in the West by the time we hit the postseason. I guess that's, that's sort of a, a long way of getting around to that point. I think Denver is is still going to hang on to the number one seed. But I think Phoenix, for the way it will be playing and how it feels about its chances come postseason, um, I think they'll be uh, pretty close behind the, the Nuggets. Sticking with the Western Conference for now, you know, Memphis was a team that you know, like six weeks ago I thought, man, they've got something going here. And then they seemingly have not won very many games since that stretch over the last few weeks. What, what's happened to them? Yeah, I think some immature maturity is showing with the uh, with the Grizzlies. Um, they um, they were great when they were on a roll. I think they got a little bit out um, in front of themselves um, with their mouths. I mean, you know, you had John Morant yapping about he's fine with with the West, and 
you know, they've had the stuff, you know, the Shannon Sharp stuff and, and uh, um, you know, that, that sort of courtside, you know, shenanigans that, that is merely a distraction if a team is serious about, you know, where it wants to go. I think, I think they haven't learned how to, how to handle success. And as a result, now they've, they've, they're learning how to handle some adversity. Um, I just think it's a, it's a matter of, um, you know, not, not, not having been there before, in essence. And, I mean, they, they won a playoff series, you know. Big deal. I mean, it was an exciting team. It is an exciting team. Um, I don't think they're, they're perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I think ultimately it's, um, you know, this is new to them. And, and they need to take a couple of uh, smaller steps before they can, uh, you know, have the biggest britches. Steve Ashburner, NBA.com here on KDOS AM 1060 in the extra point. Staying in the West, it feels like no one is talking about the Nuggets. They have been the top team in the standings in the West all season long. Jokic might be competing for a third MVP title. And yet after the trade deadline, after the All-Star break, it just feels like uh, they aren't even leading the West the way that the narratives have been structured. So when it comes down to it, though, what exactly makes this Nuggets team so formidable and why shouldn't they be slept on? Well, I mean, this is um, uh, they've got great continuity, assuming they can have their their guys uh, healthy. And Jamal Murray, um, you know, is is back. Um, uh, You know, Michael Porter Jr. is being able to. Uh, hang in there with with his various ailments and things. Uh, everybody is better because they play with Nikola Jokic. Um, to me, I mean, it's a it's an either or type of thing. If Jokic is healthy, um, Denver's a top contender. If something were to happen to him, you know, they're they're one of those teams, like a lot of teams. I mean, probably anywhere from a half dozen to a dozen teams that if you lose your 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 main guy you're pretty much done. Um, you know, some teams can absorb that kind of a hit, but, um, you know, when you've got, when you've got a guy who's head and shoulders above uh, the other guys on his roster, like Jokic is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's proven statistically. Obviously, it would be a, a deflating psychological um, occurrence if he were to get hurt. Now, I'm not trying to jinx him or anything like that. I love, you know, watching Jokic play. Um, he's surprising. Even though you know his background, you know, consecutive MVPs and a strong candidate for a third straight, which would, you know, put him in Uber Elite company. Um, he's still surprising to me on the floor with things he does. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's like a reminder that you underestimate him by appearance. And, and then he, uh, you know, I mean, he, just, he just pulls the rug out from under you. So I, I think Denver... Um, they're doing what they need to do, in my view. They needed to have a great regular season. You know, Jokic has been good for a while, but they've been a little bit underwhelming in terms of their results. And they needed to have this all translate into uh, into victories, and they're doing that now. Um, you know, you guys know what happened though when you when you can have the best record in the regular season, and you know you still run smack into something. Um, you know, in the playoffs, so. That's, uh, that's probably what all the West uh, competitors with Denver are hoping for, that, okay, you'll get that number one seed, but we still might be able to shock you and maybe not even let it get to a game seven if you need that. The Warriors, I'm going to assume that Steph is healthy and comebacks for, can, can come back for the postseason, but do they just suddenly snap their fingers and start guarding somebody once the playoffs start? Because they certainly <laughs> haven't guarded anybody so far. 
Yeah, that's a great point, Bob. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, people are, are pronouncing the uh, the Warriors uh, dynasty over. Um, I'm seeing that a lot lately, and I'm wondering whether they can just, you know, rally it again uh, when they hear the playoff bell. That's uh, that's not easier. That's not easy to do, and it gets harder to do um, as some of your players get a little more advanced in age. And they've got a, they've got a little bit of a split. They've got you know these guys that are long in the tooth with uh, with Steph and Clay and Draymond, and then you've got guys that necessarily haven't haven't proven they can do it on their own. I mean uh, Jordan Poole, um, you know how much can he do it when the expectations are actually on him and not on the other guys uh, that I mentioned. So. Um, yeah, I'm not so sure they're going to be able to make the the long climb through the uh, through the West and uh, and put themselves in a in a position to uh, to repeat. Now, you know, uh, Curry is buying himself time. I mean, he'll have fewer miles and he'll be fresher uh, than if he had played straight through. And you know, assuming that he come back healthy, I mean, that's a good thing. You know, there's really no downside to him to miss these games, other than the fact that you know they're they're below 500 right now and uh, and pretty far down in the standings, which means, you know, your route to anything meaningful in the springtime is, is tougher. Steve Ashburner, NBA.com here on KDOS AM 1060 in the extra points. So the Hawks let go of Nate McMillan, their head coach, and it appears that Quinn Snyder is now becoming the leading candidate to take that job. When it comes to this Hawks squad, though, you also have Trey Young. You traded for DeJounte Murray. You know, what's kind of the future surrounding this Atlanta team and how to make this a competitive team in the East moving forward? Well, I think player accountability is the number one thing. I would have said that the day before Nate McMillan got fired, and I say it now in the in the aftermath. I mean, yeah, you, you change a coach. They did that once. They got rid of Lloyd Pierce, and and that was supposed to be the move that would um, instill some, uh, I don't know, reflections in a mirror in, in the players they have there. But, you know, that didn't really change. I mean, Trey Young remains headstrong and difficult to, to manage now with, two straight coaches and you know john collins it seems like all he ever talks about whether he has a contract or not is ending up playing elsewhere and you know with all the all the players that moved at the trade deadline john collins is still with the atlanta hawks so i mean maybe accept the fate and try to do what you can to make that the best situation um you know i just i just think that 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 roster needs to own um, some of this disappointment since they made it to the East Finals a couple of years back. And, uh, and it's not just going to be able to be fixed by, by changing, you know, the guy on the sidelines in the, uh, in the fleece top or whatever these coaches wear now. So it's, um, yeah, Trey Young, I mean, Trey Young may likely end up elsewhere. I, I think that the, uh, the lease now is pretty short for any um, stubbornness and, um, you know, prima donna ways on his part. The Bucks, uh, Giannis not expected to play tonight. Certainly, the betting market reflects that. Uh, just a small favorite against Miami, uh, and you know, Giannis, I'm guessing, is probably not going to play against the Suns on Sunday, unfortunately. But the Bucks intact. They, you know, before Giannis went down with the injury, before the break, had won 12 in a row. Have they kind of figured things out here? Well, I think it still hinges on Chris Middleton. Um, you know, they they tampered Chris Middleton. You know, uh, you know, almost all the way to the All Star break. I mean, he he started to make progress, and that was good. And they were 
mindful that he had had wrist surgery, and he, of course, was lost in the in the playoffs last year um, against Chicago with a, uh, a twisted knee, and that, I think, hurt them against Boston in the next round. And so they were really cautious and, and brought Middleton along slowly, and he was making strides, and then all of a sudden it seemed like there was some unexpected regression, and, and he didn't play the game before the All-Star break. So, you know, I know he practiced, when they reconvened um, since then. But to me, it's Middleton. If you take, you know, the, the second-best player on that team, and I say that with all due respect for uh, Drew Holiday as well, but clearly Middleton is, um, you know, offensively, he's uh, he's their release valve uh, when, you know, you can't count on Giannis's, um, you know, shooting anything beyond at the rim. Um, uh, you know, so I think you take Middleton out of that equation and the Bucks become – you know, a lot less, a lot less formidable. So I think it's gonna it's gonna be a matter of what we see from Chris uh, between now and the start of the postseason. Um, and it, you know, it sounds terrible because it means you're taking Giannis for granted and you're relying on you know a 34 year old uh, uh, Brook Lopez to not just you know gut out the regular season, which he didn't do last year, but also continue this play into the postseason. But um, yeah, to me, it, it, that's the key, Middleton with Milwaukee. Adam Silver, he's been a big advocate for having this in-season group stage type tournament. Uh, in your opinion, is this a smart way to try to drum up interest for the NBA? And would this reflect in having more games for the players to play in? Or would the in-season tournament <laughs> also be reflected into this 82-game schedule? I'm not a soccer fan, um, and so this in-season tournament stuff, I, I don't really know what to make of it. To me, it sounds like something that might cannibalize interest in your traditional playoffs that come at the end of your season. So, um, you know, I haven't spent any time on it, but I hear it thrown out there from time to time. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, we hear too much about players feeling overworked, but now you're going to insert this thing that they're either going to, you know, take super seriously and peak for, and that'll steal from the from the uh, regular season. Um, you're going to promote it so much that now your regular playoffs, you know, seem like chopped liver. I, I don't get that at all. Right now, I think the NBA's got got two problems, and and one is when you don't have stars showing up for games with the load management. The other problem is when you have all the stars showing up for a game, and that's the All Star game. So I mean. They're, <laughs> They're both pretty uh, pretty challenging to address, and uh, I think that the the league and nobody listens to me, but I think that the league would be better off spending its time on addressing those two things than uh, pushing forward on on uh, any sort of mid season tournament. I'm definitely listening to you on those things, but I don't know how much clout <laughs> I have, so I'll, I'm trying to help you here, Steve. So there we go. Uh, the trade right. deadline, more than a couple weeks uh, go now, and obviously the Durant move stole off most of the Thunder, no pun intended, because the Suns are playing the Thunder tonight, I guess. But uh, anyway, uh, was there another deal other than Durant that was made that you uh, think is kind of a sneaky move that could really uh, increase a team's chances in the postseason? Boy, um, I don't know. I think, you know, I think, since we have moved on, I mean, you know, it, I guess it comes down to your opinion about Dallas with Kyrie Irving and uh, Luka Doncic. Um, uh, the the ability to throw a second elite offensive player at um, teams' defenses that that's 
that's something. I mean, if there's there too much overlap or redundancy or a need to uh, to split the basketball, you know, that's something else. So I'm not sure that that, um, you know, really uh, – I guess I, I'm more skeptical than, than the people, obviously, that made the move uh, for the Mavericks or, you know, some of the, the experts that somehow see uh, Irving as a great um, – uh, alternative for, for Doncic and makes Doncic better by asking a little less from him. Um, no, I don't I don't know that any of these things. I mean, obviously, we're all eager to see Durant with Phoenix and, and what that means, you know, both to the, the, the potency of that of that offense and, you know, what what sort of slippage they might experience defensively or in terms of depth. As a result of that deal, I think I think that's where most of our our eyes will be focused. Steve Ashburner, NBA.com. Before we let you go, kind of one more question on the overview of the NBA: Is this a good thing or a bad thing for the league that scoring points just continues to be on the rise and defense sometimes is like less than optional? Well, they've taken um, defense out of it by by restricting, you know, a lot of the physical play and and the contact and impeding the offensive players. Um, you know that 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 sort of stuff held down scores, but it also wasn't very um, sightly. It was it was rather unsightly uh, back in the '90s, for instance, when you had when you had that stuff. Um, but I mean, cheap points. Uh, you know, they're like empty calories, you know, to me. And uh, I know my way around empty calories, so, you know, hear me out on this. Um, I, I just, uh, my biggest beef is that they, they, the reliance on the three-point shot. I just think that it's it's imposed the sameness on games. A um, It doesn't differentiate players. To me, most players, when they launch a three-point shot, they mostly look the same. Now, some guys do it from farther out, like Lillard and Curry. But otherwise, I mean, a three-point shot's a three-point shot. And what you lose, in my opinion, is a lot of the individuality that has shown up historically in the game inside that arc from the mid-range. I mean, you have Dominique Wilkins, Julius Irving, Bernard King, um, you know, Sidney Moncrief. You had guys who, you know, did their thing with signature moves and, and in different ways. And, and the, there was more diversity in, in how the game was played. Um, and I, and I, I miss that, to be honest with you. I think the, um, uh, you know, the, just firing from outside, sometimes it feels like I'm watching a, uh, a ski ball game. And, uh, you know, there's, there's also the, I, I get tired of seeing guys miss three pointers. You can say that making, 33% of your threes is the equivalent of making 50% of your twos. That's the math that started this whole mania. But um, when you're making 50% of your twos, you're only missing half your shots. If it's 33% of your threes, you're missing two-thirds of your shots. And so I think you have to sit there as a fan and watch these additional misses. And what does that do? Does it kick out a long rebound, which fuels the other team's fast break? Is it, does it create more opportunities for second-chance points? I don't know. I mean, I haven't really seen much analytical study of what happens with all these three-point misses. I just know that when I, when I see teams, you know, boldly miss uh, three-pointers and even more so recklessly veer away from the basket on a fast break to kick the ball outside or even dribble it outside and turn around and shoot a three on a fast break. 
you know, I know I'm not watching, um, you know, traditional, um, I don't even know how to term it, hyper-competitive. It just seems silly when when everything that, that basketball was about was your nearest shot is your best shot. And they still tell you, yeah, the shot's at the rim, layups and dunks. Well, that's fine, but they've, they've sort of dug a moat between those and the three-point shots, and, and I think that they've, they threw out, you know, a lot of good stuff when, when they, uh, they cleared the way for that moat. Steve, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much, and we'll be doing it again as the playoffs kick into gear. Sounds good, guys. Thank you. Once again, Steve Ashburner there, NBA.com.